It's 1944, and five children are killed in the bombing of a Woolworth store in southeast London. But what if they had lived? Follow them through the years as they encounter all the reality of life in the 20th century. From Francis Spufford, Costa Prize-winning author of Golden Hill, comes Light Perpetual, a novel of the everyday and the miraculous, of second chances and redemptions. Light Perpetual, out now in hardback and ebook from Waterstones. And always a pleasure to introduce Dr. 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 I, there's a TV series in this, I think. Dr. 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 Christmas. Are things good, Chris, in general? It's been interesting, again, on the coronavirus front this week, hasn't it? In a sort of an up yes. and down sort of way. We've got wonderful vaccine numbers in the UK, which is great for the UK. But in other countries, look at Brazil terrible problems in brazil that they've seen their mm. highest death toll yet four and a half thousand people per day are losing their lives in a country where the premier of the country appears to be completely insouciant about what is going on and the good thing about the vaccines from our perspective is that we can see evidence in our data that they are working not just to protect people from catching the infection but also stopping deaths which says as soon as we can get more vaccines into more people across more of the world we do have a fighting chance of reining this thing in. And then we've got the other side of this, which is the new stories around AstraZeneca's vaccine. Even though there has been the detection of what people are probably acknowledging is an incredibly rare but real side effect of having this vaccine. And it's way down, way, way down in the uh, frequency below what we would call even a, a rare reaction. It's nevertheless increasing the backlash which that vaccine had been seeing in terms of people lacking confidence in it etc and, and that's gonna i think it's gonna undermine our efforts a bit so we need to make sure mm. people stay on board with that because it's it's a it's an amazing yeah. vaccine I, I listen listen i've been encouraging people every day even when i close the show to take the blinken vaccine you've had so i mean you haven't grown any spare parts you seem Not to yet, be in pretty no. good neck i've got my next one next week actually on um Monday. Okay. So I'll be I'll be queuing up on Monday, sleeve up, ready to go. It's quite funny, when I went for the first one, the way that they're doing the vaccines in the UK is they've got a series of vaccine centres, many of them run by volunteers all over the country. They're doing this amazing job. I mean, they're getting through half a million people a day, which is just incredible. And um, the, the people who met me at the vaccine centre, because it's very organised, incredibly slick machine, they recognised mm. me off the telly. And so they're all backstage kind of drawing lots who is going to shoot up the dog. And this lady kind of said, oh, um, uh, she says, um, my hand's shaking because it's you. And I thought, oh, my God, where's she going to inject this thing? Is it going to go my eye or something? But actually, she was fantastic. She was a, a practice nurse from uh, a, a doctor's surgery in the next door town, a new market, actually, where all the horse racing goes on. Uh, and yeah. no, I had a lovely conversation with her and they, they are doing a fabulous job. So let's hope this can be emulated across the world and... Um, Everyone gets not one but two doses unless you're having a vaccine that only needs one dose. And that's the other piece of news. Johnson & Johnson's vaccine is getting closer to the finishing line in many countries. So that's another important contribution to the effort and only needs one dose rather than two, which is good. Mm -hmm. And um, and then we stand some chance of, as I say, because of the data seeming to suggest these vaccines don't just save lives, they, st they save infections. We have a chance of, of squeezing this thing very hard and stopping it. Indeed. Now, my wife has a, a British passport, so 
Um, you just tell me when your second visit is. I'm happy to, um, you know, walk in there with you because everybody will be paying attention to you while I sneak in behind. And, and hopefully when she, while, while she's trying to inject you, her hand's shaking so much it hits me in the arm. So, I don't know, let's try that one on for size. Um, <laughs> anyway, let's, let's, get to, um, let's get to the questions. Hi, Kino. Peter here from Durban Bowl. I just heard you say you will rather take the vaccine before you get COVID again. I don't sure if I heard you correctly or not. Mm. Um, and I also don't know if you've had COVID or not. So um, I'm not a doctor, but according to my knowledge, if you've had COVID, then your body's already developed some sort of immunity against it. So I'm not sure if taking the vaccine will do you any good. There was actually a... Um, an interview, I think, two or three days ago on uh, John Nathan's show of, um, yeah, I can't remember who the person was who did it, but I, I do recall, and I might recall incorrectly, that it was echoing the same thought that, um, so once, if you've had the disease, it will not really benefit you to uh, take the vaccine. Um, but again, that's what I hear, that's what, not what I'm uh, I don't. I stand to be corrected on that. So mm. I just want to have your thoughts about that. So, um, yeah, yeah. Let me know what you I, think. I, I did say that. Yes. I'm. I'm not the doctor, so I'm gonna. But thank you for sending that. I'm gonna leave that up to the uh, much more than capable doctor to answer. The current guidance is that regardless of past infection status you should have the vaccine. And the reason for this is that whilst what we've just heard is, is true, if you have coronavirus infection and you recover from coronavirus infection, you have made an immune response that has helped you to recover. But not all coronavirus infections are made equal. Some are very severe, some are very mild. And the amount of immune protection you seem to make in terms of level of antibody is directly proportional to how severe the infection is. So we're seeing people who nearly pass away and recover they have really high levels of immunity at least for a while but the vast majority of people aren't in that camp the vast majority of people have trivial infection and have much more trivial immune responses and as far as we can tell mm. coronaviruses do not produce long-term immunity the immunity we get mm. is months possibly a year or so we think at the moment but it's not multiple years and therefore, it's perfectly possible if someone has had coronavirus because we're now a year into this pandemic, last year, mm. their immunity could now be waning. And so to say to people, yeah. you've had it, you're fine, could mean that some people are susceptible again. Now, while they might get another trivial infection, and that would be the obvious uh, riposte from what I just said, oh, it'll just be trivial again. What about the person you give it to, though? Because if you give it to somebody for whom it's not a trivial infection they've got big problems. Mm. So the whole point about trying to get to a level of, of so-called herd immunity or herd protection through vaccination mm. is so that everyone is protected to the same level, which should give us the best odds that we're going to be able to suppress the spread of the virus through the world population. And interestingly, a, a report from University College London, which is coming out, uh, it's just, just out actually, suggests that as of next week, the UK population should reach the first threshold of about 70% for herd immunity. So this is the point at which enough people are robustly enough protected in a population 
that it should begin to interrupt the spread of an infectious disease. Mm. So we should begin to see now, um, and this will be a very useful experiment, lots of countries looking at the UK situation to see whether this threshold of about 70% or so of people who've been protected is enough to keep the virus from circulating and spreading through the population. It may be we have to go much higher. It may be a bit like measles, where we have to push it to to, to 90% plus in order to get that herd immunity. But that's the reason why people like you, Kino, have been advised, despite having had Mm. coronavirus, still go and get the vaccine, because we are seeing reinfection. We are seeing reinfection that occasionally causes severe infection, but a reinfection is a reinfection with producing an infectious person that could transmit mm. it to somebody who is also susceptible, and that's the reason. Exactly. It also depends which variant you've had. Um, you know, there's, there's some studies here have shown that you've had the South African variant, as we call it. Um, then you probably won't get reinfected by the original one. But if you've had the original one, you could still get infected by yep. the variant. In and that's Africa. exactly so, what they're seeing in Brazil as well. I was talking to mm. uh, a, a Brazilian doctor last night, and he, he was telling me about their experience of these variants in Brazil. And they have got parts of the country which were really hard hit the first time round, and to the tune of maybe 75-80% of people in those areas who caught the infection, mm. totally overwhelming yep. healthcare services. And now they've got these variants coming back in a number of different parts of the country. They are reinfecting all the people who caught the parent or classic coronavirus, and they're Mm. seeing a big surge again, which is putting people in intensive care, overwhelming healthcare services again. These are people who we know had it the first time round. So what you say is absolutely spot on. The variants can reinfect people who are already immune to to the previous variant. Clive in Swellendam. Good morning, sir. Hi, good morning, gentlemen. Just a quick one. I heard on quite good authority uh, yesterday that one must be very careful of having the flu injection and then having the vaccination. Um, They say you must have at least a three-month break between a flu injection and then having the vaccination for the COVID. Is this true, Chris? Hello, Clive. The answer is no, it's not. And in fact, people are talking about using a simultaneous vaccination strategy so that you'd hold one arm out for a COVID jab and the other arm out for a flu jab. The reason for that is that neither are live agents. If you're having a flu injection, not the live flu virus vaccine, which is used in certain circumstances, for instance, in children. So we'll put that to one side. But the normal routine flu jab, this is not a live virus. It is killed, brutalized, broken up bits of flu. The coronavirus vaccines, some of them are like that, but there are also a range of things, including genetic vaccines and modified viruses that can't grow in the body, but just deliver the genetic message of what the outer coat of coronavirus looks like. For that reason, these will not be impaired or encumbered by each other. And they're not mixed up in the same syringe. They're given into different compartments of the body and different parts of the anatomy. They will not interfere. They will just drive independent immunity in both cases. So we don't think it's a, a problem having both around the same time. The contraindication is if you're not well from something else, you shouldn't go and get vaccinated. You should wait till you're better because you don't want to overwhelm your body and, and overstress the immune system when it's already trying to cope with something or partial infection you're suffering with at the time 
whatever it is to other people at the vaccine line. But there is no problem with having both vaccines around the same time. Initially, we thought there might be uh, it might be better to wait. But in fact, uh, people are saying we probably will be able to give both at the same time. Well, thank you very much for that question, Clive. Okay, have a good one. Perfect. Let's uh, move on to some of your voice notes that you've sent in. Morning, Kina. Just hearing Dr. Chris say that in the UK, volunteers are giving the vaccines. That's why they can be so far ahead. Here in South Africa, even our um, pharmacists who have the knowledge to give them and the doctors are not allowed to just give the vaccine. I have my flu vaccine at my pharmacy and I've had it for many years. So why can't my pharmacist also give me the vaccine? I don't understand it. Thanks, keynotes, Felicity. Chris, maybe you can give us some insights into that, though. Um, I mean, you did. You said it's run like a well-oiled machine and all hands on deck, essentially. The... When the general public accept that the best way to sort ourselves out is to get as many people immune to this thing as possible. So there's really good public uptake. There's really good motivation among the volunteers who are doing this. And they've got a, a very well organised geography of centres where these things are being administered. But exactly as Felicity's pointing out, this also exists in many, many countries across the world for the flu, because we give millions of flu doses in many countries every year to stop people uh, catching the flu. So really, it's a question of piggybacking on that and just doing it at bigger scale. The big problem, though, at the moment, it isn't so much the will of the people or the will of the volunteers and motivation. It is the supplies of the vaccines. And many countries are saying that, in fact, they are running full tilt in terms of what the vaccines will allow them to do. But they haven't got any more vaccine to scale things up further. This will change because many countries are investing in the infrastructure to produce vaccines on the ground in those countries because for various reasons the world had ended up in a situation because of globalisation where countries that once had flourishing vaccine industries like the UK have basically abandoned in the past about three or four decades all of their vaccine manufacturing and outsourced it to a small number of places around the world India, the Serum Institute, is a massive player. Belgium is a massive player. So as a result, now we've got a situation where everyone wants a smaller number of infrastructures to produce everything for them all at once. And this is leading to bottlenecking. And it's not just a question of you need the chemicals that go into the vaccine, you need to make the vaccine. You also need to put the vaccines into glass vials and then ship them. And all these things take time. So what is now happening is countries are saying, well, we're likely to see this problem going on for quite a while. We're likely to therefore face these supply bottlenecks and other issues and people might do some vaccine nationalism and stop the export of uh, vaccines to other countries. Yes, we're looking at you, EU. And as a result of that, it would be better to have infrastructure on the ground, especially in the continent of Africa because that if you have a few well-placed centres across the various African nations, they, they could supply countries very efficiently this way. So this is being considered, being looked at. The question will be the quality control, to make sure that the vaccines that are getting made can be made to a high standard, rigorously, and then uh, shipped out efficiently. And, and I think with something like AstraZeneca's vaccine and also some of the other products that are coming along that are very, very stable, they don't need this sort of 
demanding minus 80 freezer storage yes this is eminently possible so watch this space that many countries are beginning to go down this road and for much less investment you could have your own vaccine manufacturing plant in country which saves all the shipping and distribution and difficulties and enables you to operate at scale and gives more future proofing so lots of countries are now beginning to go down that path but in the meantime it is really just a shortage of supply which is holding up things rather than a shortage of people Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist, asking and answering at least all the questions that you have about everyday life. Marianne in Sunningdale, how are you doing? Fine, thank you. I would like to know whether it is safe for a person who has had Guillain-Barre syndrome to take the vaccine, and if so, which type of vaccine would be the one least likely to cause a relapse? Hi, Marianne. The the answer with... um, Guillain-Barre syndrome, for those who haven't come across this, is a disorder of the nervous system where, for some reason, and it can be a range of different triggers that cause this, the immune system attacks the outer coat of peripheral nerves. Not the spinal cord and not the brain, but peripheral nerves, the kind of nerves that run through your tissues to supply your muscles and your skin. And it can produce a paralysis, but luckily recovery is possible so people get funny sensations and a loss of control of those parts of their body but over time the nerves can recover it seems to be an immune attack provoked by a range of different things and one of them is infection others can be reactions to to various things but chiefly it's some kind of infection reaction and we, we don't completely understand this and we don't know who is most susceptible to it Usually it's one of those things that happens to somebody and then it doesn't fortunately happen again. If you routinely have vaccines for things like the flu and you're absolutely fine, then there shouldn't be a problem this time because these virus vaccines are killed vaccines or inactivated or they don't actually have any live agent in them. They are, in that respect, safe They've also gone into very large numbers of people now, these COVID vaccines, and to the scale of tens of millions of people around the world. And we're not seeing a huge, great exacerbation in cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, including in people who have perhaps what you would call a susceptibility because they've had it before. And so therefore, I think that um, all bets are on. You you have really a, a choice of whatever you're offered. I would I would take it. Great. And we'll come back and take... The question from Ashley in Rondebosch next. With conversation this hot and happening. The taxi industry is a vital cog in our economy, transporting millions of people to work every day. You never want to miss a single beat. Every right has a limitation to it. But when life happens, K-Talk recaps all the biggest conversations from the week. Every weekday from midnight. The crumbling of availability of things as simple as water and electricity. Catch the best of talk only on K-Talk. Join the conversation. Many things can severely affect your business, like fire, theft, and mechanical failure. Whatever happens, we'll be there to keep your business going with business insurance from Old Mutual Insure. For the business you are today and the one you'll be tomorrow. The time is now. SMS growth to 35442 for an obligation-free quote. Visit ominsure.co.za or speak to your broker today. Old Mutual Insure Limited is a licensed FSP and non-life insurer. Standard SMS rates apply. Welcome back to my YouTube channel, guys. 
Today I'm replacing the cartridge in my shower mixer. I've already loosened this screw here, so I can now just pull it straight out towards me. Mom! Mom! Turn off the water! Mom! Not all experts are experts. At Bright's, we offer trusted advice and quality products. And you can even shop online. Bright's, more than just a hardware store. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Guys, did you invest in a car that's safe and reliable? How do you maintain it after your motor plan has run out? The answer is AutoWorks. At AutoWorks, you get original parts with a 60,000-kilometer one-year warranty and workmanship as good as the agents. With branches in Strand, Milneton, Salt River, and now also Brackenfell, keep your car maintained according to the original manufacturer specifications. Visit autoworks.co.za for more. AutoWorks. We make autos work. This is Today with Kino Cummings on Cape Talk. Good morning, Ashley in Rondebosch. Hi there. Hi, uh, Dr. Smith. I'd just like to know, in terms of when they do the PCR test, when you get the results, you either get a positive or negative result. So, you know, everybody's talking about the different variants. Are you telling me every single test that they do worldwide tests for which variant you have? Um, you know, or is it only sophisticated countries or those countries with more money that are able to do that? Because my understanding of doing, um, you know, getting, doing that, so you get a positive or negative test, and then to test which variant you've got, it's very, very expensive to do that. I mean, I saw the statistics on Sky News the other night that there's, you know, f- you know so many thousand of the Kent variant, 480-something uh, of the South African variant, and, you know, whatever of the, of the Brazilian variant. So, you know, my question is, is every single... Uh, that conducted because you know if I'm uh, tested positive can I find out which variant of the virus I have? The answer to this is no not every sample is genetically sequenced to find out what variant it is. The way this is working is that when a person is tested by PCR the PCR reaction copies the genetic information of the virus and it looks for a very specific part of that genetic information which is unique and specific for the new coronavirus and also is consistent across all the different variants. So, in other words, even if the virus changes, they're using parts of the genetic information that don't change in these variants in order to make sure they don't miss the diagnosis. Now, when you get a positive, yes, you've got coronavirus, a proportion And that will vary in different parts of the world. Some countries don't have the capacity to do this at all. Other countries have a very well-developed machine for doing this. But a proportion of the positives, and in the UK, for example, it's about 10% of the positives, the sample that was used to do the test is then sequenced. What that means is that they read genetic code end-to-end of the virus, and that enables them to compare that genetic code with the genetic codes of all of the other viruses they've sequenced to see if it is different. That is how they then spot the variants. And what you're able to do is to ask what proportion of the infections that are being diagnosed are viruses with this genetic makeup. And you can see, therefore, new things appear. And then if they become much more spreadable, like the so-called Kent variant, which we saw emerge in the southeast of England before Christmas, if they go from accounting for a handful of the cases you're diagnosing to accounting for more than 99% of the cases you're diagnosing, then you can make a reasonable estimate as to 
the likelihood of what a new infection having a particular variant will be in the country. So, for instance, if you've got a very rare variant, you can say, well, it's very unlikely uh, that you're going to have these variants, but you'll probably have this particular strain of the virus, which is accounting for the majority of the infections. Whereas if you've got something now accounting for 99% of cases, which, you know, the Kent variant, the UK variant, is, is doing that in Europe now, you have a high likelihood if someone's diagnosed positive with coronavirus, that is going to be the cause. But no, they are not uh, routinely screening and sequencing the genetic code of all the viruses that are causing infections and being diagnosed across the world because there are so many of them, it would be impractical to do that at the moment. Thank you very much for that. James in Simonstown. How are you doing, James? Hi there, Gina. Microchondrial DNA was taken off a shawl belonging to one of the prostitutes killed by Jack the Ripper. This was some years ago, and they proved Jack the Ripper was the guy who the police had as the suspect in their files. Does your expert believe that this uh, found the Ripper? This was very controversial. I remember the story, and I actually interviewed the gentleman from Liverpool John Moores University who said th this was what he'd found and in fact it then turned out that there were a number of other explanations for why he could have seen what he could have seen so I, I think people initially thought that they had found Jack the Ripper and then subsequently retracted the claim saying we haven't got enough evidence that the story is quite as cut and dried as we have thought uh, so I think the jury is still out. Okay, James, thank you very much for that. I take it you do a lot of reading on Jack the Ripper et al., hey? Uh, yes, I have a split personality. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. My excuse is that I'm a Gemini and I can't help it. You know, okay. but thank, thank you very much, <laughs> James in Simon's time. <laughs> Let's see if we can do this in a minute and 10 seconds. But uh, why do cats turn around before they lay down? That's from Lester and Mowbray. Well, dogs do this too, and they'll go round and round in circles to make their bed. Number of possibilities. One is when you're spinning round and turning round, you're getting a cat's eye, dog's eye or bird's eye view of what's in the environment, so you can look for any potential danger. Number two you might, if you're going to trample on a snake or some other nasty thing or a biting insect, by trampling round A, you'll make it go away or squish it so that it's less dangerous to you when you do lay down. And three, it makes the bed more comfortable. I'm going to try that. Turn around in circles. Go on, get into under my duvet. And your wife will be delighted when there's just a huge pile of duvet in the middle of the bed and, and you're laying on top of it. <laughs> How's Tracky McTractorface doing, by the way? <laughs> Very well, thank you. I rebuilt the whole thing and it runs a treat now. No smoke and, uh, you know, it's it's great. Okay, you owe us a video or a photograph. I'll, I'll, I will do that. that. Now the weather's improving, I'll shoot some photos. And, uh, yeah, but, it, it, uh, you know, oh. I, I was very nervous that this thing, because I had all the engine in bits and I thought, I hope I can put this back together. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and it will run and it, and it does, which is, you know, it's quite extraordinary. You think well, this thing was yeah. the last time that anyone was in there was 60 years ago because I got all the bits out and they were all the original Fordson stamped oh, wow. up factory line parts that were in there. And I've put original or decent, uh, you know, proper replicas or originals back in so it's it's been faithfully restored and it, and it does run a treat it's quite amazing really they're very well built those machines in those days can't wait to see this thing absolutely <laughs> chris have a All right. fabulous weekend stay safe and i look forward to next week cheers Ken. Have have a bye, -bye everyone